Welcome to Discovering Music. I'm David Owen Norris, and today we're seeing if we can discover how Mozart improvised at the piano. He was a virtuoso pianist from a very early age, and his piano playing earned him a, a good half of his living. Besides his composing, he was known as a, a famous pianist. He was, in fact, the first great composer who had a piano in his study. And so, of course, he wrote many of his pieces, especially the concertos, to display his virtuosity as much as his composing skill. But now you imagine, if you're at a fancy soiree in Vienna in the 1780s, you haven't got an orchestra, and it's not really suitable to play a sonata, but somebody says, would you play us something, dear Mr. Mozart? And you'd have to sit down and improvise, and you might play something like this while you thought of a tune. So here's Ashley Watts to play at our party. It started off as if Ashley was just trying the piano. But then Mozart started to get interested in the harmonies that he was finding, and it went on to some really interesting chords. It was, of course, Mozart's D minor fantasy, and I bet quite a lot of you play it. It was written down eventually, but it's pretty certain that it is a real improvisation from 1782, and we'll see why that's pretty certain as we move on through it. So, Mozart's begun. What's he going to do next? He's going to think of a tune. We're in the key of D minor, and that's one of Mozart's tragic keys. If you think of all that very tragical music in Don Giovanni, for example. There's a lot of D minor in Don Giovanni. And in Mozart's time, the different keys at the piano were actually tuned so that they had different musical characteristics. So that, to be just technical for just a moment, the distance between the D and the F, the minor third of D minor, was actually a different distance than the minor third between, shall we say, C and E flat. On the modern piano, which we tune in equal temperament, all those thirds are the same. And so all the minor keys have the same degree of sadness to the ear. But in Mozart's day, they took great pride in tuning them so that they were actually different. And we miss that with modern tuning. But fortunately, of course, we can hear the musical characteristic that the tuning of the key inspired Mozart to. So this is a, a sad piece. Mozart is defining it as a sad piece by having it in D minor, and he moves on to another sad idea, which I think of as a tolling funeral bell. But the bell isn't tolling in D minor. Mozart here is on the brink of a key that he almost never used, A minor. There's very little Mozart in A minor, and what there is is usually fairly special. Think of the great A minor sonata or the Rondo alla Turca. 
it must have had some quite complicated associations for Mozart. What we're going to hear now is how an improviser's mind works. We've had those repeated tolling bell notes in the right hand. Now Ashley's going to play the repeated tolling bell notes in the left hand, while the right hand has a quiet inward panic at the nearness of death, or perhaps the nearness of A minor. And what everybody in that Viennese salon in 1782 is asking themselves is, dare Mozart play his tune in A minor, the key he never uses? And yes, he dare. And for Mozart, that's a real psychological threshold that he's crossed. Now, after that, he plays with the various ideas that we've heard. He goes back to his beautiful tune in D minor, and he has another dramatic pause, as you'll hear when Ashley Wasp plays it through. But now what? Mozart gives us a ray of consolation in D major, even a, a hint of delight there. So we can hear how Mozart has improvised a few simple ideas to create a musical shape, which is in fact an emotional journey. It's what we call a musical form. And the party goers are impressed and they decide to book Mozart for their wedding anniversary. So here's Ashley Wass to play our party version of the Mozart D minor fantasy.
Ashley Wasp playing Mozart's D minor fantasy. Now, Breitkopf and Hertel, the publishers, have just played a trick on us all. When Mozart's D minor fantasy was first published in 1804, 13 years after Mozart's death, the last 10 bars that we've just heard were missing, and the piece actually ended like this. And it was a chap called Müller who added this. And one is forced to the thought that perhaps Mozart wrote down his fantasy just to remind himself, and perhaps he thought the ending was so obvious that he needn't bother to write that bit out. And then when they published the manuscript after his death, at first they were at a loss, and next they added that. Well, Ashley and I can't be the only pianists who think that Mozart might not have been quite so trite at the end of his emotional journey. Mozart was a master of form, and even though it's tricky when you're on the hoof improvising. I think that he would have revisited his earlier ideas and tied them together, especially that opening prelude that became more significant as it went on, and which we've never heard since. And so we're going to try stitching together um, a quasi-improvised ending that rounds off Mozart's emotional journey a little bit better. What we'll do, we'll play from where Mozart stopped, and then Ashley's going to return and remind us of that opening and then instead of getting ready to go somewhere new, he's going to play a, a different chord on that big arpeggio all over the uh, keyboard. And then he's going to remind us of those very significant tolling repeated notes. Let's see what it might work out like. Remember you heard it here first. Another time we might uh, decide to leave the last chord in the minor. It might have been different every time Mozart revisited these ideas. He would have made a different improvisation each time. The sort of extemporization that Mozart said he prized most highly was this thoughtful, formal type. He specifically disapproved of what he called chopping. Um, it must have been a, a Viennese term for playing fast and loud all the time, because Schubert uses it as well. Schubert, in a letter, mentions that he doesn't like to do all this terrible chopping that virtuosos do. It sounds like a bit of special pleading, perhaps, but uh, nonetheless. But of course, when Mozart was playing his piano concertos, that was a, a different matter. I mentioned that he wrote some of them, some of his piano concertos, to show off his own playing. 
And sometimes he wrote piano concertos for other virtuoso pianists to play. And what you can be sure of in Mozart's piano concertos is that there's always that moment where the orchestra stops on a chord that you can't really stop on, and the soloist is left hanging over the edge, like Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible, or like that cat in Tom and Jerry off the edge of the roof. It's time for the cadenza. And the soloist is supposed to improvise his way out of this terrible moment, out of this impasse. And luckily for us, Mozart wrote some of his cadenzas down. And for the B-flat concerto, Kirchel number 456, an easily remembered one, fortunately, which he probably wrote for the uh, blind virtuoso Maria Teresa Paradis, who was three years younger than Mozart. She, she played it in Paris in 1784. Uh, we've got no fewer than three different cadenzas, all of them almost certainly by Mozart, though unfortunately none of them in his own writing. And we're going to play these three cadenzas through so that you can see the sort of thing that Mozart improvised his way to when he was at this wonderful cliffhanging show-off moment in a concerto. Now, of course, if you're improvising a cadenza, you've already got tunes. The instruments of the orchestra have spent the whole movement playing tunes. The soloist has already played the tunes, so you don't have to think of tunes. The interesting thing is, what will you do with them? This B-flat concerto has the, uh, the usual main subject at the beginning, what we think of as the first subject, which goes... Tum, tum, da -dum, tum, da -da -dum. Very characteristic rhythm, and uh, making sure that we realise it's in B-flat. And then it has, later on, a second, broader melody, which we think of as the second subject. We call these subjects rather than tunes, because they play an important formal part in the music. And this second subject goes... Ta -da -da. So immediately different and recognisable. And then after that, there's a little string of less important tunes that might appear on the flute or so on to show that you've reached the end of a section. We'll hear those as we go through the cadenzas. Let's start with the simplest of the three cadenzas. The orchestra has just played da-da-da, da-da-da, and the piano starts by playing that again. first subject. And now the second subject. one of the less important little tunes. there's a dramatic moment in the orchestral introduction. We've reached a chord of F, actually gives a chord of F, 
and Mozart contradicts this chord of F with a G flat in the bass. A very foreign note which he harmonizes with this chord. And this next cadenza remembers those dramatic G flats which Mozart obviously loved and which took him to extraordinary places in his written out music. He's going to see if they take him to some other extraordinary places in his improvisations. And so you'll hear the G flats fighting against the note F at the bottom of the left hand at the beginning of this one. second subject but with a tumbling twist. Mozartian joke at the end there. You know cadenzas always end with that trill. And you probably notice that Mozart had a trill, and you can imagine all the orchestra getting ready to come in, and then Mozart added another scale and another trill, and they all had to wait a little bit longer. <laughs> Interestingly, they only had one of the concerto's tunes in that cadenza, just the second subject. Now, this last cadenza that we've got has only been published since 1998, and they found it in the Glinka Museum in Moscow. And it begins with yet another little tune that we've heard already, and it also visits that G-flat. one of the tunes, the second subject. It's 
So those three cadenzas, all to the same concerto, give us some idea of the endless possibilities that Mozart, as an improviser, was able to find. I don't suppose he would have stuck at three if he'd had a bit more time. You'll have noticed that uh, there's lots and lots of top F, and that, of course, was Mozart's top note on the piano in those days, that top F that uh, kept appearing. And the, and the bottom note was, was a low F in those days, and Mozart was one of those composers who used every note that he'd got. He used the full range of the piano that was available to him. You're listening to Discovering Music with pianist Ashley Wass and me, David Owen Norris. We're discovering what a good improviser Mozart was. We've heard him improvise from scratch in the D minor fantasy, and we've heard him putting together fireworks of cadenzas from tunes we've heard already in the B-flat concerto, K456. But there's another thing that you can do with tunes. You can play them differently the second time round, what we call ornamentation. And we're going to look at that in the slow movement of the F major sonata that Mozart wrote when he visited his hometown, Salzburg, in 1783. Uh, it was published in Vienna the next year. Here's the melody of the slow movement. Now, in Mozart's autograph manuscript, when that tune comes back later on in the movement, it's exactly the same. And it must be said, of course, that it's already quite decorative. It's got quite a lot of little twiddles as part of the tune as Mozart wrote it down. But when it was published in Vienna in 1784, the whole of the second appearance of that tune was re-ornamented. Nothing much happens for the first couple of bars, as you'll hear, but then...
Mozart's published ornamentation for the slow movement of the F major sonata that he published in 1784. And presumably, Mozart would automatically have varied melodies in that way, whether or not he had on a given occasion persuaded the publisher to print the ornamentation for him. It's very difficult when composers leave examples behind them. There's some uh, Handel ornamentation, I recall looking at, which he wrote expressly to show a young English soprano who wasn't familiar with the Italian style of singing how to decorate. And very often people take these Handel vocal <coughs> ornaments and think that that's exactly what Handel would have done. But one has to put into the equation the fact that if this was a, a young English singer who didn't know the Italian style, what the Italian singers did might have been much more complicated than those examples that Handel wrote down. And similarly, with some of the uh, cadenzas that we have that seem to be by Mozart, we have to bear in mind that it's just occasionally possible that a pupil had come up to Mozart and said, oh, Mozart, I don't know what to play when I play your cadenza. And Mozart, oh, God. So he'd have written something down for a pupil, sort of possibly in despair, thinking, well, how ridiculous. And for all we know, Mozart's cadenzas that he didn't write down might have been more complicated even than the third one that we heard. No way of telling. And of course, the uh, important aspect about this is, is that Mozart probably wouldn't have cared whether it was like the one that he wrote down or not, because in those days there was a great freedom of performance. And uh, that's rather difficult for us to, to realise now. There's not very much improvisation about. Uh, when we hear a bit of improvisation, we tend to call it playing wrong notes. And uh, this is a great, uh, a great downer for people who would uh, like to decorate melodies. We're all very literate, aren't we? I, I sometimes find myself spelling, I'm doing it now, golly, spelling words, typing them as I speak them. And it's very difficult to escape the text. Formal improvisation in classical contexts these days is very rare. Some of you may know the half hour or so of improvisations that Elgar recorded and never really wrote down in 1929. And uh, it, it is alive and well, I can report, in the French organ loft. I found myself in Notre Dame in Paris a few weeks ago. My son's school choir was singing there. And they sang as their introit. Alan Ridout's There Is No Rose, which is a little, little piece that goes, There is no rose of such virtue. Nice little piece, but uh, not very substantial introit. And sitting at the back of the cathedral at the mighty Cave Col organ was the organist of Notre Dame, Olivier Landry, who had almost certainly never heard this little piece of Alan Ridout before. And the next thing that had to happen after this was that there was a fantastic procession of missals and Bibles and priests and archdeacons and goodness knows what, and they came in to the most wonderful improvised introit in which Olivier Landry turned Alan Ridout's There Is No Rose into the most cataclysmic experience that you could ever imagine, and he had certainly only ever heard it for the first time that minute. It was an amazing display. Actually, not the least amazing of the things that he did was that it didn't matter what note the priest ended up at, and the priest, priest did have a tendency to, to sing flat a little bit. Um, but Mr. Laldery always knew exactly where he was and came in on that pitch. However, there is one sort of improvisation that's alive and well, even today, and that's the art of variation. It's what jazz musicians do all the time. 
it, uh, it, it helps with the formal problem, because as we heard in the D minor fantasy, if you're going to make a shape and yet improvise a shape, that's quite difficult. But if you're going to improvise different ideas for varying a theme that you've got, then your basic structure is given you. The tune keeps coming round again and again. And what we're listening to is not so much the surprises of form that that might involve as the amazing ideas that the <coughs> improviser is able to think of. The improviser is able to clothe a skeleton or put flesh on a skeleton all the way through. And Mozart did this quite a lot. We know there was one occasion on the 23rd of March, 1783, when Mozart was in the presence of the great operatic composer Gluck, Christoph Willibald Gluck, and in order to flatter Gluck, Mozart improvised some variations on a tune from a Gluck opera called Unser Dummel Pöbel Magd. And he didn't write those variations out properly until more than two years later, from March 1783 to the 25th of August 1785. And what's interesting about this written-out version is that there does exist an earlier written-out version from in between the time that he first improvised them and the time that he... Uh, wrote them down properly, and this early version has some of the variations in a different order. And so we can see that Mozart's polishing process of his variation playing consisted of putting his variations in an order in which they built more convincingly to and from climaxes and emotional statements and so on. It's very interesting to see that actually happening in these Gluck variations. So you can see that there are two layers of thought in the improviser's mind. There's the decoration, and then there's the ordering, which is to say the musical form. Now, Ashley Wass is going to finish today's Discovering Music by playing Mozart's variations on a very well-known theme indeed. But before he does that, I'm hoping that what we've heard so far will have stimulated you to lots of questions, either for me or for Ashley. And so I'm going to call upon the person with the roving microphone to come and take the mad clamour of questions which I expect at any moment. <laughs> We know that Mozart used a pedal board of some kind, which must have been a sort of forte piano, but on the ground, which he controlled from his feet. I wondered if anybody had ever tried to reconstruct such an instrument and experiment with the way he might have used it in his performances and extemporizations. I've, I've only seen pictures of reconstructions, and it involves the rather terrifying thing of putting a piano on top of a piano without legs. And the piano without legs has got just enough notes for what we're used to on an organ pedal board, for example. So it might have gone from low C to F at the, near, near the top of the, well, at the top of the bass voice, about 30 notes, something like that. And Mozart, who would have been familiar with organ playing as he would have been familiar with harpsichord playing and familiar with uh, piano playing, though people weren't really specialists in those days, Mozart apparently played some of his piano concertos on such an instrument, as you say, and there are actually passages in the D minor piano concerto which seem to demand pedals. And indeed, yes, people do try doing that again. I heard a story uh, just the other day. I was uh, talking to the principal of the Royal Academy of Music, and um, he was saying that the Academy had been given not a pedal piano, but a pedal harpsichord by the British-American organist E. Power Biggs, and he had had such an instrument made precisely so that he can uh, play that sort of, of concerto. But they're, they're not in common... They're not, not commonly available. Have you ever seen one? 
No, I was just interested to know because I wondered if anybody tried to perhaps reproduce the sound. And it's interesting, it begs questions like what Mozart would have done because he couldn't have used the damper pedal at the same time as trying to use that pedal board. And you'll hear references to Beethoven saying that he actually played with quite a staccato sound. And this all seems to come together. That In fact, he probably didn't have much opportunity to use a damper pedal if he was using that pedal board. Well, the, the dampers very often on these early-ish Viennese pianos, that's to say the pianos from Mozart's time rather than Schubert's time, shall we say, are in fact operated by the knees. Um, and you have to have, at uh, the bottom part of your legs, the right height to match the height of the keyboard, because the dampers are controlled by a lever which is underneath the keyboard, which you push upwards with your knee. And if, if by any chance the piano legs are too long, you simply have to put your feet on a box and push upwards. So it may be that it was possible for Mozart to have a, an organ pedal board down there that he could play with his feet and at the same time have a sort of a box above that on which he could put his right foot and push upwards with his knee. Um, it must have been a little bit like watching a one-man band, you know, with a man with a, with a mouth organ and a bass drum on his back and playing the guitar or something, I don't know, it must have been extraordinary, but uh, th that may have been the way around that. David, you mentioned that the um, cadenzas appeared in Moscow in 1998. Is there any interesting story as to how on earth they arrived there or how it, why it took so long for them to be discovered? Well, I'm afraid I, I don't... There, obviously, there is an interesting story that lies behind this, and I'm, I'm afraid that I, I don't know it, which is a, a sad dereliction of duty, isn't it? But what it does tell us is that um, there's all sorts of things still waiting to be discovered. Libraries are very often catalogued in a hurry, and there's not always the possibility to leaf through every single bound volume to see what's left in there. If you go into the British Library, for example, and you, you look for a particular song, usually these song sheets from the 18th century, shall we say, have been bound into big volumes, and they've been in other people's libraries from time to time. And tucked in, sometimes, are little slips of paper that when you get them out and read, you know, they've been written on the back of a recipe or something like that, and when you turn them over and read the real thing, there's some fantastic breakthrough. And I know quite a lot of scholars who haunt libraries and, and look at everything precisely because there might be another Mozart cadenza tucked in to, to something else. That's normally what happens. It's, it's that they've been missed in the cataloguing purely because they're tucked into another book. What the precise story is in this case, I don't know. I'd like to ask you about Tempe because obviously we know that uh, recordings we've heard and performances we've heard do vary the tempi, both the fast and the slow movements. Now, how much would have Mozart, in a sense, improvised his tempi? Well, I, I can't really speak for Mozart, but I mean, I, I think that <laughs> the, the, the general pattern, I think, is that uh, performance tempi from that era were, were generally faster, I think I'm right to say that, um, than they are today. Part of the reason, perhaps, for that, um, in terms of the sort of nature of the instruments we play, because they sustain much more now. The, the depth at which you have to depress the key is much greater, so it makes certain things more difficult to play at the kind of tempi that performers would have been able to, to take um, back in the sort of 18th and 19th centuries. But I, I certainly think that there is a sort of move as the centuries have progressed to, to get slower with tempi. Some of it is indeed, as Ashley says, due to the nature of the instrument. I was rehearsing um, 
uh, the little E-flat concerto 449 yesterday with Monica Huggett and an early music band and I'd got a little little sort of twinky piano that didn't make very much noise and it didn't uh, sustain very well as Ashley says. So there's a lovely slow movement which goes when you play it on a Steinway but in fact it can't go that slowly an early piano, the early piano isn't going to sustain it, and actually just the way they hold the bows, because you know that when they're playing classically, they don't hold their bow right at the end, they hold it a little way up, which means in effect that they're slightly shortening the bow that they've got available. So the whole thing has to go rather faster, and you have to find a way of making it sound calm without being slow. And uh, it, it opens up a, a whole new set of, of things, which you can then, next time you play it on a Steinway, you can play with that as well. And it, it just reminds us there's more ways of killing a cat than drowning it in cream. <laughs>